All right, we are back, and we are grateful as ever for our archives because in what was an embarrassment of riches back in August of 2005, we had William Hartman on, followed a week later by Steve Squires, the chief investigator of the Mars rover missions, whose book, Roving Mars, came out at that time. It is rather astonishing to note that although of the two rovers that Steve Squires was in charge of, the Spirit and Opportunity, the Opportunity is still working. Or at least it was until this latest planet-wide dust storm erupted on Mars starting in May. It, uh, it depends on solar panels, so whether it's going to survive this remains to be seen. The much larger Curiosity rover is powered by radioisotopes. doesn't depend upon uh, the sun to keep it alive, but uh, you know it's in danger too from all of that dust in the Martian atmosphere. When we talked to Steve Squires, we mentioned the surprising fact that although they thought his rovers would accumulate dust and lose power and eventually drain away all of their energy, well, it didn't happen because, uh, miraculously, the solar panels got clean as, apparently, wind blew the dust away. We started out with Dr. Steve Squires by asking about his missions to Mars, which were the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. Can we talk about some of these remarkable uh, bits of luck you've had? You, you put down the Opportunity rover on a flat plane with some minerals associated with water. Then you find yourself in a crater, the, the sides of which have the bedrock you're looking for. That was an incredible stroke of luck. I mean, the, the place where we landed was <coughs> flat, very uniform, just studded at these very infrequent inter intervals by, by little tiny impact craters. And through just sheer dumb luck we rolled to a stop right inside one of those craters. We opened our eyes when we first landed and we looked around and there we were in the middle of this tiny impact crater and exposed in the wall of the crater uh, were these spectacular uh, layered outcrops of bedrock that held the keys to what we'd come looking for. And it was right there, it was 25 feet in front of us. It was, it was an astonishing piece of luck. And our luck has continued. We've had other things like that. Um, the Spirit Rover was close to death. Spirit right. was coated with dust. We had dust on the solar panels and, and barely enough power to survive. We managed to struggle up onto the crest of a ridge, and we got hit by a gust of wind that cleaned the solar arrays off, and it was good as new. It was amazing. Yeah, there was quite a few good, funny cartoons about that moment when, when it was no, announced that the, the, the rovers were mysteriously cleaned of Martians with car washes and things. It was quite Yeah, yeah, you pick your par car washes, squeegee guys, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Your book has quite a few amusing moments, and you're describing that that uh, that initial shock of of not really knowing what you're seeing uh, as opportunities taking its first pictures. Literally, uh, you're seeing it for the first time. The world's seeing them for the first time, and <laughs> you say at one point, "Holy smoke!" Leading to a report in Korea that uh, that the second Mars lander has seen mysterious smoke. Yeah, and then they said it's a good thing he didn't say "Holy cow." And we, of course, did not pass up the opportunity to ask Dr. Squires directly about the question of Mars and water. Uh, we found salt deposits that were formed when water evaporated away and left, left its uh, salts behind. We found ripples that were preserved in the rocks for billions of years that were formed when water flowed over, over sand on Mars long ago. So what we can do now is we can point to a specific place on Mars and say, here, at this place, billions of years ago, there was liquid water and there are mineral deposits still sitting there from those billions of years ago 
that could preserve within them a record of what conditions were like in that water and whether or not there was ever life there. You were set down to basically prove that, that water uh, had flowed on the surface of Mars. This was highly suspected based on the orbiter photos, but you've, you've now proven that, that in conjunction with that, uh, you know, that famous meteorite and now evidence that methane gas is coming out of the Martian crust. God, what, what, what odds would you quote that we're going to find microbes on Mars? You know, I really don't know. One of the one of the worst mistakes you can make if you're a scientist is to is to think you know the answer when you don't have <clears throat> definitive evidence, because it can it can skew your interpretation of the results. If if you think you know the answer, if you want a certain answer, uh, it can it can make you do the wrong thing and conclude the wrong thing. So, what I'm trying to do is maintain an open mind and uh, to just design good experiments to go there and try to find the real answer. Yeah, we had a chance to speak previously with, with William uh, K. Hartman, whose Atlas, A Traveler's Guide to Mars, was a, a nice companion piece to your volume to really understand about, about the geography there. He noted that NASA's been really um, sort of bent over backwards about making any pronouncements about, about water uh, on the surface, and, and that, uh, well, you've finally proven that it, that it was there. Are we going to find some vast reservoirs of underground water? I don't know. Um, I think there certainly are large reservoirs of underground ice. Uh, we have with uh, a spacecraft called Mars Odyssey, an orbiter that was uh, launched before, right before ours and that, that, that succeeded brilliantly. Uh, Mars Odyssey has found compelling evidence for ice, you know, permafrost beneath the ground. Um, whether or not there's liquid down there is a lot harder to determine because you probably have to go a lot deeper. The spacecraft in orbit right now, a uh, European spacecraft called Mars Express that has on board a radar system that should be able to to probe below the surface and maybe detect uh, liquid down there, but uh, it's, it's too early to say what those, their results are going to be. Now, we held this conversation almost 13 years ago, but Dr. Squires predicted that the Mars Express, with its radar, might be able to find some deposits of ice. Now, since we had that conversation, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has taken pictures of what looks for all the world like eroding cliffs on Mars, which shows water ice peeking out in a blue color from the edges of the cliff. This will come as no surprise to anyone who read William Hartman's book, because the Traveler's Guide to Mars gives example after example after example of you know, where there appears to be ice under the surface. We'll have more to say about that in a minute, but it is in fact that uh, Mars Express spacecraft with its radar on board, which peered down to find signatures from something like a mile down. And don't ask me how you can shoot radar and get signals back from a mile down, but I guess they did, that looked to be most likely liquid water, a lake. If this is borne out by subsequent research, it stands to be the first example of a lake under probably ice and stone anywhere in our solar system other than planet Earth. And luckily for us, we had a third conversation with a distinguished scientist about this same topic of Mars and its relationship to water. In this case, Emily Stewart Lakdawalla. We would like to note that uh, Emily has just published her first book, The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job. Emily Lakdawalla was recently the guest of honor at an evening recording of Matt Kaplan's Planetary Radio. One of our favorite programs here at Radio Parallax, we've had Matt on the show several times, along with Bruce Betts, also the Planetary Society. Those folks do some good work. 
She also blogs at planetary.org slash blog. We spoke with her much more recently than we did to William Hartman and Steve Squires. And let's air a bit of that, Mr. McMillan. I want to pick your brains about Mars. I know you published some pieces about the red planet. Uh, we had on William Hartman many years ago. He published a wonderful atlas of, of, of Mars and makes a really good case that there's ice everywhere. And yet we keep getting headlines about, well, they think they finally found water on Mars. It's like, well, didn't we find water a long, long time ago? Is, is NASA being afraid of being ridiculed like Percival Lowell and his canals? It's a running joke, actually, in, among space journalists that NASA discovers water on Mars at least once a year. Anybody with a halfway decent telescope can discover water on Mars for themselves. <laughs> if you point a good telescope at Mars, you can see polar caps. Those are made largely of water ice. So it's not hard to discover water on Mars. So, so you know, we joke about this, but the fact is that, that what NASA is looking for is something a little bit more... Um, uh, a little bit more specific than that. So there's a couple different ways you can look for water. You're either asking about present-day water or you're asking about water in the past. Now, for present-day water, some of the news, probably what Bill Hartman was talking about, was the discovery by Mars Odyssey that water ice covers the globe everywhere, especially in the northern lowlands. There is tons and tons and tons of ice buried just beneath the surface. Yeah. And that's when, what led to the Phoenix mission, which landed in uh, near Mars' North Pole in, I think, 2008, and actually dug just below the surface and, and actually sampled some of that water ice. What I think is is the most intriguing and, and saddest news about the discovery of water ice everywhere beneath the surface of Mars is that one of the Viking landers, which, which they had scoops, if it had just dug like another five centimeters deeper, oh it would have come across water ice way back in the 70s, and maybe the history of Mars exploration would have been a little different. So that's present-day water, and that's really good news if you're interested in human exploration of Mars because it, you would land in a relatively low elevation. You could just take a shovel and dig, and you'd have water. Um, water is obviously necessary for human survival. It's also useful for generating power if you dissociate it into hydrogen and oxygen. So there's, there's a lot of uses for that. So it's, it's very good news for, for humans that there's so much water in the present day on the surface of Mars. But then there's past water. And the reason we're interested in past water is because we'd really like to know if Mars used to be able to support life the way that Earth presently can. And most of what uh, past orbiters and landers had found was that Mars' water tended to be a very rare thing, um, occasional flood, uh, it was very acidic, very sulfur-rich. But recent orbiters had discovered evidence for little tiny spots preserving the most ancient history of Mars in a time that maybe it looked like the water might be more amenable to Earth-like life, and that's what Curiosity went to Mars to follow up. And so Curiosity is now exploring these most very, very ancient rocks that show signs of ancient rivers running across the surface, tumbling rocks, and making lakes, actually just sitting there, lakes full of water that would have been the kind of environment that Earth-like life would have liked to live in. Well, I gather from the from, from the studies of the topography that we think that much of the northern part of Mars was in a shallow ocean. And I guess this is the great mystery. Where could all of that water have gone that it was absorbed in the crust? I mean, is it ice? Where is it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and actually, not all Mars geologists agree that there was a northern ocean. Oh. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's a definite possibility, but it's also uh, not necessary that there was an ocean in that northern basin. And, and there is some back-and-forth debate on that. Um, but there was a fair amount of water running across Mars' surface at one point in its past. Where did it go? Uh, the, the evidence from Mars Odyssey is that a bunch of it is still sitting in the subsurface. There's meters thick of water 
sitting beneath those northern lowlands. And that's a fair amount of water. It's not as much as Earth has, but it's quite a lot. And so um, a lot of it then you know, went into the subsurface. Mars probably also lost a fair amount of it because it lost a lot of its atmosphere after its uh, magnetic field shut down and it couldn't shield its atmosphere against the solar wind anymore. So some of its at- atmosphere and therefore some of its water was blown away by uh, the solar wind over the course of its history. So there you have it, three pretty smart scientists who spoke with us about Mars and its water. But at this point, I want to return back to the third planet that orbits the sun, Mother Earth, and talk about what the hell happened up in Washington. Oh, and by the way, we at Radio Parallax are not surprised to find water on Mars. I mean, liquid water, a lake under the surface. We argued many years ago that it seemed pretty likely to us that such a thing was going to be found, groundwater. Oh, and it it very likely is a very briny soup, something like the Dead Sea, one imagines, or the Great Salt Lake. But, uh, you know, who knows? We need to go there and drill. We're getting a lot of time to figure this all out because, well, it just, you know, that's just the way science goes. It's not always just laid out before you. And there is no better example of that than the research of J. Harlan Bretz. It was geologist Bretz who, back in the 1920s, described these scab lands up in Washington as lowlands diversified by a multiplicity of irregular channels and rock basins eroded into the basalt. Noted Wikipedia, flood waters eroded the lowest cover, the, the dirt basically, creating large anastomosing channels, or braided would be a better word, which exposed bare basalt and created butte and basin topography. They note that the buttes range in height from 30 to 100 meters, while the rock basins range from 10 meters in width up to 11 kilometers long and 30 meters deep. Brett stated further back in the 20s that the channels run uphill and downhill. They unite and they divide. They head on the back slopes and cut through the summit. They could not be more erratically and impossibly designed. Bretz was sure this was caused by water and lots of it. But there was a great debate on this. The debate on the origin of the Scablands ensued for four decades. It became one of the great controversies in the history of Earth science. Now, after describing the Scablands, J. Harlan Bretz supposed that the only thing that could have carved out those structures was an immense flood, 500 cubic miles of water, for which he had no explanation. Not surprisingly, Bretz's theories met with vehement opposition from geologists of the day who tried to explain the features with uniformitarian theories. And we should talk a bit about uniformitarianism versus catastrophism. Looking at the structures on Earth, which are, well, pretty rough and tumble and pretty complex and pretty mixed up, shall we say. You go on the top of a mountain and you find seashells. What's that all about? Well, now we know as the continents slide around and bang into one another, you know, they drive up mountain ranges and that causes the seafloor to rise up and become the top of Mount Everest in some cases. But long before this is understood, the explanation of, you know, why you might find seashells on top of the mountain was that, well, pilgrims must have taken them up there and deposited them. There was also the possibility that Noah's flood, a great catastrophe enveloping the entire earth, would explain why things got deposited here and there. These explanations sometimes, well, trended to the fantastic, which caused more sober-minded scientists to say, well, let's not invoke, you know, some wrath-of-God type explanation to explain this. Let's assume that the processes that 
work uh, are fairly slow and steady and uniform. And by God, uniformitarian-type theories do explain an awful lot of what you see in the world of geology. However, when you looked at the terrain in eastern Washington, it, it, just, it just didn't make sense. For example, there are astonishingly large potholes and ripple marks in the terrain, something that looks as though a waterfall, a waterfall that would make Niagara look like you know, a dripping faucet, had flown over rock and blown out, you know, carved out great potholes in in the terrain. They looked at what appeared to be giant current ripples. They were between, you know, uh, three feet and 50 feet high. They were regularly spaced and relatively uniform, which would make sense if they were the ripples that formed at the bottom of a large volume of flowing water. The thing is, in your typical river, The ripple marks that you find in the bottom are centimeters high, not 50 feet high. The scablands are also littered with large boulders, which are called glacial erratics. The explanation now for them is that when this glacial dam broke and it has rocks embedded in it, or perhaps rocks on top of it and it floated down and then deposited them in the middle of random terrain downriver. The uniformitarians had a bit of trouble trying to explain how those large boulders got there. But since nobody, including J. Harlan Bretz, could imagine how there could be this source of water east of Washington, uh, well, everybody was just sort of stumped. A man named J.T. Pardee, however, suggested, first back in 1925, to Brett's that the drainage of a glacial lake might account for the flows of the magnitude that were needed. Pardee continued his research over the next 30 years. The hills around Missoula, Montana, have uh, what appeared to be ancient shorelines, different levels where the, uh, the lake surface went up and went down, and little waves, of course, ate away in the rock. And uh, he was pretty sure that Lake Missoula, which existed 13,000 years years ago, could have been the source of the Missoula floods and the creator of the channeled scablands. If you look this up uh, on the internet, dear listener, and we hope you do because I think this is pretty interesting stuff, you will see photographs of some dramatic examples of how the landscape got carved. One of the most dramatic is Dry Falls. What you can see now is a cliff that's three and a half miles wide and it's 400 feet high. It's estimated, however, that at their peak flow, these floodwaters were possibly 800 feet deep at the top of the falls. (laughs) So the volumes of water, icebergs, and house-sized boulders crashing over the falls must have been unimaginable. Now, of course, if planet Earth ever gets around to having another ice age, which there seems to be quite a bit of doubt about, you know, a glacier could form again up there in Idaho, and this whole process might begin anew. It does appear, however, that the amount of CO2 that mankind has pumped into the atmosphere may uh, postpone that, maybe permanently. But it's interesting to to ponder how that this scientific debate went back and forth. Uh, You know, J.T. Pardee and J. Harlan Bretz uh, uh, were on the right track. And after decades of painstaking work and fierce scientific debate, they finally carried the day. Evidently, some research on open-channel hydraulics in the 1970s put Bretz's theories on some solid scientific ground. And happily for him, in 1979, he received the highest medal of the Geologic Society of America, the Penrose Medal, to recognize that he had developed one of the great ideas in the earth sciences.
I'm sort of struck in this instance of how this compares to poor Alfred Wegener, the German scientist who back in 1912 took a look at the globe and went, hey, have you noticed that the coast of Brazil and the coast of Africa fit perfectly? He proposed that the, he proposed the idea that the two continents had once been joined, that they split apart, and then if you looked at other places on the earth, you could see all kinds of examples where it appeared the continents were rafting around and smacking into one another. Since nobody could imagine how it could be that continents could float around, Wigner's ideas got a rather chilly reception. I think I'll spend the last four minutes we have today talking a little bit about, about this. I guess this is a geology day today. Or is it hydrology? Or is it extraterrestrial hydro- hydrology? I don't know. But to quote in this case from Wikipedia, we would note that Alfred Wegner was a meteorologist. He wanted to join the Denmark-Greenland expedition, which was to take place in mid-1912, and he presented his continental drift hypothesis on January of that year. He had analyzed both sides of the Atlantic Ocean for rock-type geological structures and fossils. He noted there was a significant similarity between matching sides of the continents, especially in fossil plants. From 1912 on, he publicly advocated the existence of continental drift, arguing that all the continents were once joined together in a single landmass that has since drifted apart. He supposed that the mechanisms causing the drift might be the centrifugal force of the Earth's rotation, uh, no, or astronomical precession, uh, no. But he also speculated on seafloor spreading and the role of the mid-oceanic ridges, stating the mid-Atlantic ridge zone in which the floor of the Atlantic, as it keeps spreading, is continually tearing open and making space for fresh, relatively fluid, and hot magma rising from depth. He was spot on on that, but unfortunately did not pursue these ideas in his later works. In 1915, his first edition of his book was written in German. The first English edition was published in 1924 as The Origin of Continents and Oceans. His expanded editions during the 1920s presented further evidence. The last German edition in 1929 revealed the significant observation that shallower oceans were geologically younger. That, however, did not get translated into English until 1962. It should be noted that his ideas attracted a few early supporters... But the hypothesis was initially met with skepticism from geologists who viewed Wegener as an outsider and were resistant to change. The one American edition of Wegener's work, published in 1925, which was written in a, quote, dogmatic style that often results from German translations, unquote, was received so poorly that the American Association of Petroleum Geologists organized a symposium specifically in opposition to the continental drift hypothesis. Wegener's opponents argued, as did the Leipziger geologist Franz Kosmat, that the oceanic crust was too firm for the continents to simply plow through. In 1943, the famous evolutionary biologist George Gaylord Simpson wrote a strong critique of the continental drift theory and uh, instead proposed the idea that similarities of flora and fauna were because there were these land bridges which over time connected and disconnected the continents. In the 1950s, the new science of paleomagnetism was soon producing data which was very much in favor of Wegener's theory. By early 1953, samples taken from India showed that the country had previously been in the Southern Hemisphere, as predicted by Wegener. In 1959, the theory had enough supporting data that minds were starting to change. 
The 1960s saw several developments in geology, notably the discovery of seafloor spreading, which led to the rapid resurrection of the continental drift hypothesis and its direct descendant, the theory of plate tectonics. Maps of the geomorphology of the ocean floor created by Marie Tharp, in cooperation with Bruce Heason, were an important contribution to the paradigm shift that was starting. Alas, it was too late for Alfred Wegener. He passed away in 1930 while taking part in an expedition to Greenland. When I was a kid, Wegener's theory had not yet conquered geology. But when I looked up at the globe and saw how well Brazil fit into Africa, I, I, I knew he was right. And not to toot my horn many decades later, but looking at those maps of the braided patterns you see on the surface of Mars, I, I just knew that, you know, there was massive flooding and lots of water, and the water's got to still be there for the most part. Therefore, I am surprised not at all by yesterday's headline news that they have now located a lake of liquid water below the Martian surface. And that about does it for today's program. For God's sakes, go out and take a look at Mars. It will be putting on quite a show for you, dear listener, for the next couple of weeks. It almost makes up for the fact that we're kind of getting screwed on the lunar eclipse. Well, we haven't done an all-science show in quite a while. That was kind of fun. On next week's program, we'll return to our discussion of the more normal and sad state of human affairs down here on planet Earth. This program was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan, who is himself a big fan of the movie The Angry Red Planet. And if I'm not mistaken, some of those Edgar Rice Burroughs books about uh, Tarzan on Mars. We'd also like to refer you to our archives to listen to the program we did with Ray Bradbury. While not himself a scientist, Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, I think, did quite a bit to promote uh, the exploration of the fourth planet. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll see you then.